0: Good morning, Union Chapel. My name is Chris Say. We are starting a new sermon series called Make It Count. This is going to encompass everything from volunteering to missions, both locally and globally. We just left the Before I Die series, and now we're entering the Make It Count series. Before I start the sermon, I want to head off the entire series with a few thoughts about work that is left for us to do or that we can leave for others to do. Uh, Who here, when they go to your workplace, has a smell of coffee. Who, who smells that coffee? Who drinks that coffee in the morning? I, I see some hands. I do not drink the coffee because I speak uh, way too fast as it is, and is. I'm too hyper, so you don't want to see me on coffee. But I appreciate those who do because I love the smell of it. But somebody has to make that coffee. So here's some work that people appreciate, you know, the coffee, but somebody has to do that work to make it. Uh, and then there's the people at the end of the day who have to take that coffee pot and empty it out. And I and I've observed the coffee pot politics. I don't get involved with it. I stay away from it. But I do know that somebody has to empty that. There's also the person who takes the half a cup of coffee so that they didn't empty the coffee pot and refill it. I've seen that one played, too. So I don't get involved with those games. Coffee's not my thing. What I do get involved with, and I don't ask for it, is the printer politics. And what I mean by this is I'm sitting, I was sitting in my cubicle at work. I would hit, I'd hit print And I walk over to the printer, and instead of the five-page document I was looking for, I get a blinking light saying, out of paper. That was work left for me from someone else. Didn't even print off a single sheet, so somebody left that sucker empty, and I got to walk upon it. That's the politics I get involved with. When I used to work for Bridgestone in North Carolina, uh, we, of course, we uh, worked for the Department of Transportation because we made tires, and I was a tire engineer. Uh, when we were done with documents, the DOT said, would you please shred these things? You know, so they're, they're, they're government documents, please shred them, we don't need them. I was like, okay, fine. So it's what our, our company did. The, the plant I worked for was about the size of Borg Warner. It was about 2,500 people. It was a behemoth factory in the landscape. It was just gigantic. So the front office was pretty large. We had a shredder that you could shred half a phone book with. I mean, you could just, and it would eat it. It would just spit out the other side right in this bag. And the, and the thing with this bag was about three or four feet in diameter. And it was probably up to my waist and up to my hip. And the rule was, when that thing's full and you filled it up, you're supposed to tie it off and you're supposed to walk it to the shred depot so it could be picked up and recycled and gotten rid of. Well, here's, here's what you would walk up to. Not just me, everybody already would walk up to this. You'd walk up to a 90% full bag with two handprints that someone shoved the top down and left work for someone else to do. Or how about those who have ever, parents in the room, who have ever signed their children up for a, a sports team and you get the email three days before the team starts, and it says, it's from the commissioner, saying, there's no coach for your team. Would a parent please step up? Years ago, my, he's now six, but he was three at the time. I actually, I thought I was in the secular workforce at the time. I said, I talked to my wife, I said, I don't have time to coach. But I did, because no one else was stepping up, and actually it was one of the biggest blessings in my life. And since then, I've coached uh, both of my son's teams straight up through here. Now, at some point when my children actually have to learn something about sports, I'm going to step out and let a real coach step in. But for right now, it's fun. We just get on the field and just encourage them to play. So that's stepping up for work that people leave. In college, I had a sweet mate, and I love the guy, so if he's watching it streaming live, no offense. He's a great guy. There were six of us, six guys. We lived in an apartment of three rooms, so two guys per room. Uh, this is through college. There was a rule we had. The toilet was in one room, and the sink was in another with a toilet paper underneath. The rule was, when you were, if you finish that roll, you, when you're done washing, you go replace that roll. That's the rule. That was just like the printer bag, the printer paper, the, uh, the coffee pot. When it's done, you just do this. So I wasn't involved with this, this game either. But I had a roommate who was particularly interested in just kind of running the rules as far as he could. He was late for class. He turned his assignments in right when they had to be, no earlier, you know, that, that kind of. So he played this game he left a brown roll with one neatly placed piece of toilet paper right on top (laughs) because it wasn't empty. So I had another roommate who was kind of more of a spitfire, and he'd get energy. Well, that was the guy who followed my friend. So he goes in there. Next thing I know, he didn't do anything in the bathroom. He storms out of the bathroom and into the other friend's room, and I I could hear it through the wall, so I didn't give all of that either. This example of work being left for others to do. The best case I've had was um, that taught me a lesson. When I did work for Bridgestone, the, the front office was about 300 yards from a factory machine that we we're going to troubleshoot. I was an engineer, so we we're going to go troubleshoot and figure out why it's not working right. So my supervisor and my supervisor's supervisor, the three of us, are going to go to the machine. And so there's a rule in the factory. It's a tire factory. So there's rubber. If you see rubber on the floor, you're, you, the rule is you just bend over, you pick it up, and the next trash bin, you throw it out. And so that's a rule. I mean, 2,500 people, you'd think there'd be no rubber on the floor. So in my mind, as we were going out to this machine, there was an urgency. We've got to get the machine up. We're losing X amount of dollars per minute. I mean, productivity, it, it, that's what it's about. So on the way out, my supervisor's supervisor would stop every 10 yards. We saw a piece of rubber, and he'd stop, and he'd pick it up. And he'd Ten more yards, he'd stop and pick it up. And I mean, we must, we must have probably spent an extra five minutes, roughly, on the way to that machine, but that rubber. And so he didn't say a word to me or my supervisor. We just simply realized what he was doing, he was following the rules, and so we just started picking it up too, which we had walked by before. We always thought, well, surely this rule doesn't apply to us. By the time we got to the machine, he had taught me and my supervisor a lesson that words would never have told us, which is you're not too good to do the work that's on that floor. You're not too good for it. You're not above it. And... That man retired about before the year was up. He, he knew he was retiring. We didn't know he was retiring. And what he was doing was teaching the young guys a lesson. Look, step up and do the work that's in front of you, that's there for you to do. So with this being said, we're going to kick off the sermon series. If you could please rise as you're able, read God's word. This is in the book of Esther. Chat. Now Haman told King Xerxes, Your majesty, there is a certain nationality scattered among, but separate from the nationalities in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws differ from those of all the other nationalities. They do not obey your decrees, so it is not in your interest to tolerate them. Your majesty, if you approve, have the orders for their destruction be written. For this I will pay 750,000 pounds of silver to your treasurers to be put in your treasury. At that the king removed his signet ring and gave it to Haman the enemy of the Jews. The king told Haman, keep your silver and do the people whatever you like. And now we're going to jump ahead to scripture and we're going to refer to this man named Haddock. Haddock is the communication between Esther and Mordecai and Haddock was a eunuch assigned to Esther from the king and he was communicating to Mordecai for Esther. Okay, so that's when Haddock comes up. Mordecai informed him about everything that had happened to him. So he informed Haddock. He told Haddock the exact amount of silver that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He also gave Haddock a copy of the decree that was issued in Susa. The decree gave permission to exterminate the Jews. Haddock was supposed to show it to Esther to inform and command her to go to the king, beg him for mercy, and appeal to him for her people. So Haddock returned and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Esther spoke to Haddock and commanded him to say to Mordecai, All the king's advisors and the people in the king's provinces know that no one approaches the king in the throne room without being summoned. By law, that person must be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to him will he live. I myself have not been summoned to enter the king's presence for 30 days now. So Esther's servants told Mordecai what Esther said. And this is important. Verse 13. Mordecai sent this answer back to Esther. Do not imagine that just because you are in the king's palace, you will be any safer than all the rest of the Jews. The fact is, even if you remain silent now, someone else will help and rescue the Jews. But you and your relatives will die. And who knows, you may have gained your royal position for a time like this. You may be seated. Let's recap the story because that was... Verse, and I actually extrapolated from the book of Esther. Now, I'm going to give you the book of Esther in three minutes. I encourage you to read the book of Esther. It's an amazing book, and there's a lot more lesson than what I'm going to teach you on, but I want to focus here for right now. So let's recap the story. King Xerxes. If you've ever seen the movie 300 or heard of the movie 300, 300 Spartans defended off the Persian War, the Persian Empire, the Persians were led at the time by King Xerxes. That's the same king. There's some similarities to the movie. He was egotistical. He was maniacal. He thought he was a god. All those are true. He was the king of the known world at the time. He was the king of everything from North Africa, Ethiopia, all the way to Southern Asia, India, 127 provinces. He was king of the known world. It went to his head. That's a fact. What's not a fact is he was not nine feet tall like the movie portrayed. And there's some other gross exaggerations. But the bottom line was he was a maniacal king. He did... Rule over the known world, and he had a powerful army. Those are true. Now, Queen Esther was married to him, and that's, that's where the story picked up. I'm going to give you starting from Esther 1, all the way to Esther, the end. King Xerxes ruled over 127 provinces. He was married to Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti, uh, we don't know how she came to power, but we know how she lost her power. During one of the pinnacles of King Xerxes' rule, he held a 180-day festival, 180 days being about half a year, for all the nobles and governors of his land. So there's 127 provinces. He held all the nobles into his kingdom 180 days. King Xerxes entertained the men. Queen Vashti entertained the women. During this 180-day festival, King Xerxes got drunk, and he requested Queen Vashti to enter his presence. Queen Vashti, knowing that he was drunk and... and, and acting like a, a, a pig, said, I'm not going to come into your presence not until you're sober. And so King Xerxes got upset with this. It disgraced him in front of all his male, all the, the counterparts of his kingdom. So he went to his advisors and said, what shall I do with Queen Vashti? She disgraced me. She didn't listen to me. And and what the advisor said was, well, King Xerxes, this is terrible because she led the example in front of all of your governors. And all the governor's wives saw Queen Vashti not in her presence. What's going to happen is they're going to go back to their, gov- their governances and the women are not going to listen to the men. That's bad. And then the noble women will not listen to the men. Therefore, all the countryside will not listen to the men. This is horrible. So King Xerxes, what shall I do? The, the advisor said, kick Queen Vashti out of the throne and, and don't allow her into your presence. So that's what King Vashti, or King Xerxes did. He said, Queen Vashti, you are disposed from my presence. I'm never to see you again. I take your throne because you didn't listen to me. Again, this egotistical, maniacal king, it comes out. So sometime later, uh, and I think it's about 30 days, the Bible references a time, but it's a short period of time. It's about a month. He realizes he does want a queen, but he doesn't want Queen Vashti. So he summons all of the virgins of all 127 provinces to come into his presence, those of beauty and those of intellect. And so of of all these lands, of millions of people, the the finest women of the land come to be, and he's going to choose his queen. This is like the first American idol, except you're not winning a contract. You're actually winning like a queenship. This is like before it happened. This is where the voice got their idea. So... In walk all these women, but they can't see the king for a year. For six months, they are treated to oil and myrrh, a treatment. And the women are probably saying in this room, man, I'd compete in this competition. The next six months, it's perfumes and beautification processes, the best of the known world had of the time. So for six months, one process, six months, another, 12-month total, one year. Then the, the, the potentials could walk in front of the king, but only then. Again, we're going to the maniacal Egotistical king. Out of all those, he chose Esther, who was a Jew. Esther was Mordecai's cousin. Esther's parents died a long time ago. Mordecai, who was old enough to be her father, adopted Esther and kept her a virgin, kept her in God's presence. He did the right thing. He was a holy man, and he kept Esther holy. And so the king, nobody knew that Esther and Mordecai were related. The king had a number two guy. His name was Haman, who we saw in the scripture. Haman thought himself like a god, and he felt that everybody should bow down to him when he was walking through the the streets. The only person who didn't bow down to him was Esther's cousin Mordecai. Mordecai would only bow down to God, and he kept faithful only to God. This infuriated Haman. Haman wanted to extinguish not only Mordecai, but he wanted to extinguish all the Jews. He said, I want to leave this man dead. I want to kill everybody that he's related to. Everybody. And so the king, who had many nationalities under his control, took his signet ring off, said, I don't need your silver, Haman but do with these people as you wish. Kill them, and I'll sign the decree. So the signet ring ring meant that that Haman could write any law he wanted to extinguish them any way he wanted, and the king's ring would be signed on that decree. Mordecai found out about this, and now we're catching up with what scripture we just read. Mordecai found out about this, put on uh, sackcloth and ashes. Word got back to Esther. Esther's asking Mordecai what's wrong, because Esther didn't have a clue this was happening. Long story short, she finds out about it. She has to go in front of her, her husband, the king. The rule is in the kingdom: if you approach the king and he does not extend his gold scepter, then you're to die. And so, and, and as you're probably thinking right now, what a lovely marriage they had. Because it, the scripture also says for 30 days she was not summoned into his presence. That's not it's not a loving relationship. But nonetheless, that's what God had for Esther to do. So she had a she had a choice. Up to this point, it looked like God had given her extreme beauty. Extreme intellect, given her a man who took care of her to keep her a virgin. Look at what he had. She went through a 12-month beautification process, and she was chosen as the queen. Now she has to risk all that, all that she was designed for. She had to risk for God's kingdom. In Mordecai's words, strike through. If you don't do this, someone else will, and you won't like the results. So she did. She went in front of the king. The king accepted the gold scepter. And the end can get wrapped up pretty quickly. Haman was found out that, it was, that it, was not a, it was not a good plot. The king listened to Esther, protected the Jews. Haman was then impaled on a, on a tall pole, the same pole that Mordecai was supposed to be impaled on that Haman prepared for Mordecai. Instead, Haman gets impaled on the pole. Mordecai gets risen to number two position. And at the end of Esther, you could write, and they lived happily ever after because that's the end, because she was faithful. That's the story. Now go read the book of Esther. There's three takeaway points here. Number one, God gives us a purpose. In Esther chapter 4, verse 14, this is what Mordecai said, speaking on behalf of God. And who knows, you may have gained your royal position for a time like this. What Mordecai's saying is he's summing up all of your life events up to this point can be summed up in one statement, Esther. It wasn't for you. You were designed for a purpose. And here's where we tie in volunteering. You may say, well, how how does volunteering tie to this? Well, here's how it works. God designed us to be really talented at what we do. We just saw an intro bump of a a locksmith, of, of a musician. I was an engineer. Everybody in this room has a different trait. The question lays on our shoulders was our talent giving for our benefit only. And what I mean by that is were we to develop secular interest only. The secular interest means this. I work, you give me a paycheck. I work again, you give me a paycheck. It supports my family. That's as far as it goes. Yes, I witness the people in the workplace. That's awesome. That's great. That's what you're there for too. But God extends beyond that. Why do we write the rule that says, beyond that I shall offer no more? Because God designed us all these gifts and talents. So God designed us for a purpose. It's to be used for his kingdom, whether we collect gifts of money or not. God will get his will done even without our participation. Point number two. Still in verse 14, Mordecai says to Esther, the fact is, even if you remain silent now, someone else will help and rescue the Jews. On behalf of God, Mordecai speaks to Esther and says, listen, you don't have to do what God has for you to do. You don't have to do anything. God will bring someone else to do it if you don't. Much like the stories I gave in the beginning, who's going to fill the printer? Who's going to fill the coffee pot? Who's going to, to, who's going to take out the shredder bag? Someone will get this done. Don't worry about it. And then he goes on to make a third point. This is our third takeaway. It's better for us if we join in and participate because here's what Mordecai said if you don't do this. Here's the fact. But you and your relatives will die. So Mordecai said, saying to Esther, look, you don't have to save the Jews. You don't have to step up. And you can treat everything you've been given as your own and no one else's. But what he said to Esther was, look, God designed you for a purpose. Do you think you were given beauty and intellect and kept a virgin for your own good and your own glory? Or are you given this for God's glory? Make a choice. And the choice was, if you do, you get the happily ever after written underneath your name. But if you don't, you'll probably be exterminated. I want to ask a question here, though. It doesn't say this in the Bible, but Queen Vashti, she was deposed. She was dethroned. Could it be that Queen Vashti was supposed to step up and rescue the Jews at some point? Could it be that Queen Vashti had a purpose? And she took that purpose upon her own shoulders and said, this is my glory and she walked away from it. And then in some way, God said, I now have to be done with you. And so he deposed her. Could it be the Bible doesn't say that's true, but what I, what I ask is, could it be? And then Esther steps up and says, yes, God, I'll do your will. I'll risk my life. I'll go in front of my husband, the king, and if he doesn't extend the scepter, I give it all. Because I'm all in, God. I'm all in for you. Whereas Vashti might not have done that. I don't know. See, there's a scripture that says, do not build up for yourselves treasures on earth, but build up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Where rust does not destroy and thieves do not break in. And a lot of times that scripture is is used in tithing sense, you know, build up yourselves treasure in heaven. Based on the scripture that we just read and scripture we're going to read, I would argue that there's a spiritual currency. A currency that we can't see. I just said that when I worked for the secular world I got a paycheck. And when I volunteered for God's kingdom, I received no money in return but I do believe I was building up spiritual gifts in heaven, the treasures in heaven where rust does not destroy and thieves do not break in. I believe that. It's a spiritual currency. My raises might have been higher in the secular workforce because God controls it all. He might have given me higher raises. He might have protected me from a potential layoff. I have no idea what God did. All I know is that I was building up a spiritual currency. I was all in with God, and God said, I'm going to bless you. I have a lot of blessing. I'm going to pour it out on those who are doing my will. So I have no idea what God was doing, but I know... That was building a spiritual currency by volunteering. I want to contrast the story of Esther with the story of Barak and Deborah. In Judges chap- chapter 4, verses 4 to 9, I want to read this scripture and give you the contrasting points. Now Deborah, a prophet who was leading Israel at the time, sent for Barak and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go Take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Here's Barak's response. If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Deborah, speaking on behalf of God, said, who was a prophet at the time, who was a judge, and God ordained judges to rule over Israel. So she was basically predecessed the kings of Israel, the first king being Saul, second being David. Judges predecessed the kings. God spoke to her and said, tell Barak this. And Barak's response to God's words were, here's my stipulation. He wasn't all in. So Deborah's response, Certainly I will go with you, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. So Deborah said, sure, I'll go with you. You're not all in, but I'll go with you. And God will give the glory, but it won't be to you. It'll be to a woman. So a woman named Jael, who is actually a friend of the family of Sisera, who is the commander of Jabin's army, Sisera ran to jail, fell asleep in her tent because he thought he was safe in a friend of the family. Jael took a tent peg, ran it through his temple into the ground, and he was killed. So Judges chapter 4 describes Barak's lack of participation. God came to him and said, Barak, here's what I have for you. And Barak said, I'll go this far, but not this far. That's for for Deborah. That's for Deborah to do. God, that's fine. You can do what you want, Barak. I had something for you. I had something to pour out on you. I had a blessing to pour out. If you fast forward to Judges chapter 5, Judges chapter 5 is the song that that Deborah and Barak sang after winning this battle. And I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'm going to (laughs) say That wasn't my gifting. Um, In that story... In that song, it actually honors Jael, the killer of Sisera. It didn't say Barak who killed Sisera, it was Jael who killed Sisera. Barak gave up his honor because he wanted things his way. And so the point here is you contrast Esther, who said, God, I'll give you everything. I'll give you, you made me beautiful, you made me intellectual, you made me the choice of, of all the virgins of the land, and now I'm queen. I'm going to give it over to you. I'm going to offer on the altar. I'm going to say, God, take and do with it what you will. And God said, I'll bless this. And happily ever after is written underneath the the book of Esther. Barak, on the other hand, said, you've given me a lot. I can command 10,000 men, but I won't do it your way. I'll do it my way. And God said, that's fine, Barak. I'll bless you this far because the rest is, that's your own blessing. And so the honor and the glory throughout the the reign of Israel was not given to Barak. The theme here is that God wants us to participate. God has given each of us a gift to serve. 1 Peter 4:10. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. God has a vast array of gifts and each of us are different. Just like I'm not going to sing that song. I'm more of an administrator. I'll be sorry. I'm more of a minister. I can't sing. But the folks up here who weren't getting paid for their service this morning, they can sing. God blessed them with the ability to sing, and therefore they were up here doing it. They answered God's call, and they were here at 7 o'clock this morning, 7.15 this morning. And they were doing it because they said, God, I'm all in. I'm not getting paid money for this. I'm getting paid in the spiritual currency. I know you'll bless me and my family because I'm all in. So when you look at things to do in God's kingdom, match them up with your natural ability. My father and my father-in-law gave me this piece of advice when I was trying to decide what to do when I was first married with Jen. Trying to decide what career to take. They said, do what you love to do, and you'll never work a day in your life. And I know they didn't write that, and I know we've probably all read it in an email somewhere, but the point is, is align what you do in the workforce to what you're skilled at. It won't feel like work. And the same thing with volunteering. We have a gentleman uh, who's on our executive team who owns a couple companies. He gives, pours in wisdom to our executive team at the church helps guide where the church should go from very high level. That's his spiritual gifting. I had the privilege of walking upon him, Manning, and him, he and his small group, and the small group has a couple of our business leaders and accountants and engineers, and they're all very, very professional. And there they were at the lemon shake-up truck for before I die. One person was placing a lemon, and that was the gentleman who's, uh, who gives advice to the church's executive team. He's placing lemon. Someone squeezed it for him. He gets another lemon. And I'm thinking, man... And, and he was doing his best to get into this, but I knew his spiritual gifting was not putting lemons in the lemon shake-up. And I still rasp him. But the, the point is, is he was doing it. He said, this is what God has for me today. I'll do this today. That's what God wants me to do. And he did it. He was doing it with his whole heart. And then because of that, there's people that walked up to the lemon shake-up truck that are here right now. And God said, I'll bless that. I can bless that. But the point was, is he wasn't exactly lining up his talents with, with what he was going to do. He did it anyways. So when I say look for something to do, if you like working with children, go work with children in the children's area. If you think, man, it'd be really cool just to work at Starbucks for a couple weeks. That'd be really awesome. Well, we have a couple Starbucks here on campus in our coffee bars. So line up what you do with what you're talented at. Volunteering makes our faith come alive. James 2.26 Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. So let's not make any mistake. Christ is the way to salvation. And that is the answer. Christ is the answer. So you say, well, what's the scripture about? The scripture is about making your faith come alive. It's revealing your faith. I love you, Jesus. I'll do anything for you, Jesus. Well, here's something I have for you. You could do this. No, no, no. See, your faith isn't alive if you're denying God to work through you. You're not allowing your faith to come alive. Yeah, you're saved. You're going to heaven. But your faith is not active. It's dead. It needs to come alive. Participation refreshes and waters us. Proverbs 11:25. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. As I've said, God owns it all, and God can bless those and he can take away from those. He can depose a queen, he can raise up a king, he can do what he wants. God will bless and refresh you. And you may say, well, it doesn't make sense because I don't feel very blessed and refreshed and I'm tired and now I have to go volunteer. The worship team woke up early this morning and they were here this morning extremely early. But God blesses, blesses and refreshes them and their families and their lives. Who knows? God may have prevented sickness from their family. God may have prevented financial catastrophe from their family. God might have blessed them in ways that don't directly relate to the work they do. That's called spiritual currency. That's called investing in God's kingdom. And God will pour out the blessing, and he has a lot of it to pour out. And all he's doing is he's waiting for someone willing to step up. And God will get this done without us. Luke chapter 19, verses 39 to 40, refer to Jesus on his way into Jerusalem when he's on a donkey, and the crowd is screaming, Hosanna in the highest. People are praising God, praising Jesus, and the Old Scripture Testament was fulfilled in this action. And the Pharisees had the audacity to say to Jesus, quiet your people. And here's what happened. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. What Jesus said to the Pharisees was profound. They don't have to do a thing. But if they don't do it, God has a whole realm to deal with and he can make the rocks cry on my behalf. They don't have to do anything. And I believe that the, God's blessing was poured out on those people who were crying to Jesus on the way into Jerusalem. God's blessing was poured out could you imagine if they decided not to? If God moved in their heart, praise him as he comes in. Fulfill the Old Testament. And they just sat back and said, no, it's not my will today. I don't want to do that today. I'm going, to the con- I'm going back into the city. I'm going to go buy some doves. I'm going to do my thing. The blessing. They missed out on that blessing. God has the whole world to use. Psalm 50, 10 to 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all its fullness. God has it all. He doesn't need me, He doesn't need you. He wants us. That's the difference. Let me give you an example. I need socks, okay? I need shoes. So I need socks. I want, I would love to have a new computer. I'm not saying I have the money for it. I'm saying I would love to have a new computer. So what if for Christmas, my wife went to Walmart and she bought just a stack of socks and stuffed my stocking full of socks because I need them. I wouldn't exactly be thrilled on Christmas morning. But what if my wife went and got a computer and she had a computer underneath the tree, a little laptop there, a netbook? I'd wake up pretty excited So I like to think of it this way. Man, why doesn't God need me? But he wants me. I want God to want me like I want that computer and then some. I don't want him to need me like socks. If he needed me like socks, he'd wake up and say, there's Chris again. Need to use him. Don't want to use him, but I need to use him. No, God wakes up and says, I want to use this guy, and I want to use her, and I want to use him. I don't want to be socks. I want to be wanted by God. And so that's the beauty of this scripture. God's saying, look, even if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because I need nothing from you. But what God's saying is, even though I don't need you, I really, really want you. And I've got something awesome for you. God looks for the faithful. Don't think this would be one way. If you start looking, don't think God's not looking for you. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Scripture's telling us that God's eyes are looking to and fro throughout the earth, and he's looking for that faithful heart that he can pour out his blessing onto. He's looking. So when you step up and you say, God, I'm willing. I'm willing to lay in my life. I'm willing to give you it all. I'm willing to walk up to that altar, and if he doesn't ex- extend that golden, do- golden scepter, I'm dead. God's looking for that person who says, I'm willing to do that. And there's people in the audience right now who have given up in different ways and said, God, I'm going to lay on the altar because I've got to take care of my wife. I've got to take care of my husband. I've got to lay it out because that's what you have for me today. And God, I know you've got something for me to do. I can't watch Monday Night Football because I'm going to do this with the church. I'm going to do that with a coaching team. I'm going to do these things and I'm going to give up what I thought was mine because you're looking for a heart like me. Your eyes are running to and fro throughout the earth, and you're looking for a heart that's loyal to you. I want to give a few local examples. I want to start with those who are watching my children right now. 90% of what we do here could not be done. In fact, this service could not be put on. 7.15 this morning, we had a team of volunteers here. The worship wouldn't have been done. The greeters and the ushers, that wouldn't have been done. The coffee bar cafe, that wouldn't have been running. In fact, the light, some of the lights wouldn't even have been turned on this morning. But we would have come in. And it couldn't have been done. Then, I would have had to have my three-year-old, my six-year-old, either up here with me or over there with my wife because we didn't have volunteers to watch them. And right now, both of my children are getting poured into spiritually by someone who took their time Sunday morning right now, and they're pouring in God's blessing into my children. And here we go back to spiritual currency. If you can recall your Sunday school teacher, six years old, seven years, eight years old, I can recall my middle school Sunday school teacher very well and others. I remember she was an awesome lady, and I prayed for her. And when she died, many of us—this is in New York, so I was—I was away from it time. Many of us were there, and those who couldn't be there, like myself, were praying for her in her behalf. We were just—we we're, were in. Awe. That's the blessing poured out on her for 30 years. She got to raise up children. When she walked through the community, they'd rise up and call her blessed because they poured into them. She poured into them, just like right now, my children, when they're three and six years old are getting poured into, when they rise up, they're going to call them blessed too. And they're going to walk out. Some graduation, they'll see their, middle school, their Sunday school teacher in the audience and they're going to hug them because they poured into them. The blessing refreshes those who refresh us. So you think you're tired and there's nothing more to do, God's going to pour out on you for the rest of your life. It's that spiritual currency. I want to talk about two of the pastors who are here. Uh, Carr, Dr. Kareen Carr, um, she emceed this morning. Her life intent did not start off to be a pastor. And I'm going to flash through a couple of slides of things she did. You, you can read it. It's more to give the effect that, wow, there's a lot she did. Her career, her ministry started in high school as a youth leader. And then she became a director for children's programming as a high schooler. There was a church out there, and God said, Corrine, I need you. I know you're in high school, but I need you to direct this children's program. And if anybody knows about Corrine's org chart, what runs up her branch it's all of children's programming. So God was preparing Corrine 30 years before she stepped into the executive pastor role and oversaw the programming that we have now for our children. She oversees the 180 program. Jeff Hughes reports to her. Uh, Cassie Lachine, in charge of children's program, reports to her. Corrine was getting guided by God 30 years ago as a high schooler because God had something for her. And all God needed out of Kareen was just say yes, and I got something awesome for you. So Corrine did a lot of things. The blue chairs were sitting in back there, the blue chairs over here. She picked those chairs out as a volunteer and ran the purchase order. She was part of the team that prayed over the land here as their executive team of Union Chapel. She also, as a volunteer, ran the first small group program where 252 small groups were formed through 40 days of purpose, all as a volunteer, something a lot of churches have to pay for. A volunteer ran and did. She said yes, and she said yes, and she said yes, and finally... She felt God's call, and she was a professor at Ball State, a job that anybody would want. And she, sa- and she heard God calling, I need you to go to full-time volunteering. And so she put a resignation in, and she said before she was done working her notice out, before she was done, before she actually went and did full-time volunteering, Pastor Greg was moved by God, and Greg- God said to Greg, I need you to offer her an executive pastor position. So before it all, ha- do you see how this lines up? Pastor says, yeah, I'm willing to walk into my king's, my king's throne room. I could be killed. Kareem, for 30 years, said yes to God. I'll do this. I'll do this. And, and this one seems small. This one seems small, but I'll do it. I'll do it. 30 years later of preparation, God finally says to Kareem, now I need you to quit your job. You don't know why yet. That's insane. That's insane by human standards, but that spiritual currency was built up for 30 years, and when it finally came due, God knew she'd say yes. She said yes, and he had something awesome planned for her, and that's part of the program we see now. That's awesome. And I want to bring up my role because mine had a very similar twist. My wife and I, I was in, my, my professional education is engineering. My wife and I lived in New York, North Carolina twice, Indiana, Missouri, and we're here and all the while getting moved. And it would take about a year before we moved again. In fact, the house that we bought, in, that we bought, I assumed we were going to live in for about a year. And I walked into the house, and I said, well, we're going to be selling this in about a year anyways. Hon, what do you think? She loved the house. I said, fine, we'll buy it. We it would be on the market a year later. It didn't, but it, that's not what happened. God moved me here with a reason. When we moved to a new location... We did two things to start off. Number one, we found a house. Number two, we found a great, Holy Spirit-filled church that loved God. And that's how we found Union Chapel. So every time we moved, our priority was to get a house and find a church. And once we found that church, we dove in with everything we had to volunteer. Need a youth leader? Sure, we'll, we'll lead youth. And we'd team up in youth in New York. Small little church in New York called Wellsville Bible Church. Just 150 members. Man, we poured into the youth program. You would go to church, okay, you have a choir, we'll, we'll join the choir. Never sang before, but God bless me able to sing a little bit. Moving through, we did this, and I had no idea why. The last job I had as, an, as, a, as a layperson was finance team chairman in North Carolina of a church of about a $2 million budget. And so I was finance team chairman, and then I got moved here. So I had to drop that position, I came here, I joined Union Chapel. I had no idea that I was going to later become, a year later, executive pastor of finance, It didn't make sense. But i give up my nights working on the computer, pouring into the finance team at this this church in North Carolina, pouring in, not knowing what that was going to yield. And God just said, I can use a guy like this. Because we jumped in at each location, we had friends. There was a difference. We had friends I knew through work, and when they'd move to a location for a year, they'd move out of that location, go to the next location, and the only people they could call on when they left were the people they worked with. Jen and I, when we moved to location, we had a whole bunch of people we could call. And we learned, we developed these friends based off our volunteering experiences at that church. You'll be amazed if you say, I just feel disconnected. We would say that, but then when we started volunteering, it would be amazed how God would bless us with friendships that lasted a long time. We've got friends in four different states right now that we can call today and say, pray with me, brother. We've got friends that we can call and say, hey, let's go on vacation again. We're in whatever area. Let's go on vacation because we'll be towards your state. Will you join us? Because of the volunteer experiences when we said yes. And so when God says, I'll refresh those who refresh others, that's what that means. That's the spiritual currency. You said yes. You jumped in. You gave it your all. And I'm going to bless you in ways you're not even going to know for the rest of your life. You're going to have friendships for the rest of your life that you would not have had if you didn't step into this role. So I... I urge you to think about volunteering. If you do volunteer, be willing, be on time, be happy when you're there, socialize, and God's just going to pour out blessings. Do your work with excellence. An interesting side note, while I was finance team chairman in North Carolina, the finance team asked me, because I had a background in statistics, they said, we need to figure out who's tithing. Not the names, but the demographics. We need to know what's the background. Are they old? Are they young? Are they middle-aged? They have kids, no kids, single, married what's the race, you name it. They wanted to know what the demographic was. And we were going to develop programs around how to encourage those who are giving to just keep doing that. That's awesome. It's God's work. I said, fine, I'll, uh, I'll take this list. So I took the list home, ran some stats through it, put some demographics to it, and tried to run statistical analysis on who was tithing. And so I came back to the finance team, and my answer was this. About a month later, I said, they're not hiding. They said, what kind of statistical answer is that? I said, guys, look. I went through the list. I looked at old, young, married, single, children, no children. I looked at it all. There's no correlation. The only correlation I can make is that they're not hiding. They said, well, tell us what that means. When I say they're not hiding, here's what I mean. It means that they're in the choir. They're in the orchestra. They were greeting. They were ushering. They were teaching Sunday school, our equivalent of small groups. They were on the deacon board. They were on the finance team. They were executive team. They were not hiding. If you were volunteering, if you, if you were tithing, you were volunteering. And what that told us as a team was it wasn't about who's tithing, not tithing, who's volunteering, not tithing. It told us who was all in. Who just, God, use me. Use my money. Use my talents. Use my time. Use my family. Use me. And when that happened, the church became alive. That faith became alive. What we also found was an interesting study was that 30% roughly supplied 80% of the church's operations, 30% of the people, we actually knew because they were volunteering regularly. And here's that blessing part. I knew a lot of those people on that top 30% who were tithing. I knew them because I worked side by side with them. And so you get to know people. The people who stayed in the chairs, who said, I don't know anybody, who would never volunteer, never gave it their time, never gave it themselves, I didn't know them. I didn't know them. And so God builds that community around that. The other interesting fact was that the top five people, top five families who tithe, not the top 5%, but the top five families supported the top 10% of church operations. 10% of a $2 million budget was given by the top five families. One of the families was a pastoral family who gave. And that was shocking to me. And they poured, that top five families, everybody knew who they were because they were involved with everything. They poured into that church. They gave it all they had. They loved God. And it brought me to tears. When I looked at that, I said, it brought me to tears to see the, the, the passion that correlated. I'm going to give you everything, God. What a blessing. So I want to bring it full circle. On the screen, you're going to see the on-ramps to volunteering. I'm not going to talk about each one. I just want you to know they're there. They're actually in your bulletin. I want you to take out from your bulletin this Make It Count brochure. And in there, you'll see a series of activities you can partake in. What can I do at Union Chapel? Well, here's some right here. Also, in that, you're going to see a response card. Now, I don't want, if you're already doing like two things, I'm not asking for two more. There's a middle row that says I'm currently serving, I'm doing what God wants me to do, I'm in, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. That's great, because I know there's people in here, probably about 30% are doing exactly what God wants for us to do right now. And by the way, I did not run the study here at Union Chapel. I just assume it's probably similar. I have not done it, so don't, don't be afraid that I've seen who's tithing and who's not. So, I'm currently serving. If you, you can either check box number two and throw it in the, the ushers are going to come around in the last song or you just don't have to fill it out. If you're interested in, in, in getting involved, we call it on-ramp here at Union Chapel. If you're interested in getting coming, jumping on the on-ramp at Union Chapel, fill out this response card. This can get you involved with volunteering because God has a lot of blessing to pour out on you. And that's why when we say we don't, when we ask for volunteers from Union Chapel, we don't actually use this, the term, we need you. Because God never said, I needed you. God said, I want you. And so when we offer volunteering opportunities, we say it just like that. We're offering an opportunity. We're opening up a door, and we're offering an opportunity to get God's blessing poured out on you. And so that's what this is about. It's about God's blessing being poured out on you. I want to come full circle now and reread what Mordecai said to Esther, because it's prophetic, and it still applies today. The fact is, even if you remain silent now, someone else will help and rescue the Jews. But you and your relatives will die, and who knows, you may have gained your royal position for a time like this. It's prophetic, and it's for us today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are almighty, and you are all-powerful. Your eyes are looking to and fro for those who are going to be faithful, and those who are going to go all in with you and participate in your plan. Thank you, God, for giving us the opportunity to do that, the opportunity to experience your blessing. We thank you for Jesus who died for us, and it's only through him through which we can be saved. And we thank you after that we get the opportunity to make our faith come alive through through doing your service. Thanks for the fellowship we have. Thanks for the volunteers who are doing who are watching our children right now, who served us food, who's about to worship. God, thanks for your Holy Spirit and pouring out of this church. We love you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.